This is the SciDevNet podcast for science news and views on global development. First, we'll hear from Indian designer Nita Kailas, one of the winners of the 2014 Rolex Awards for Enterprise, announced last week at the Royal Society here in London. Thank you so much. This means a lot to me. I am very proud and at the same time extremely humbled to become a part of this family of change makers, achievers and leaders today. And we report on increased rates of obesity in developing countries and the implications of future changes in diet for food security. The more we can nudge people towards a low meat diet, the more affordable meat will be and the more that people on low incomes can get a decent share of the meat. So there's a, there's a meat justice issue which is coming up there where we need to have conversations globally. And an update on the future challenges of global health. We met the former head of the UK's Medical Research Council who told us why education is the way forward to improve global health in the long term. Then we travelled to Nairobi to discover the life and achievements of one of the most successful women in tech on the African continent. I wanted to do something important to change these kids' lives. I went there with a blank slate. I wanted to just do something. I wanted to change the world using technology. That's, that's, that's still what I want to do. Welcome to the SciDevNet podcast. I'm John Escombe, and with me for this month's podcast is Chris Kreese. Hello, Chris. Hello, John. How's this month been going? Oh, brilliant. We just finished our June podcast. It's up on the website if you want to check it out. Packed full of things? Oh, brilliant, yes. Okay, well, let's start this month's. Indian designer Nita Kailas believes that good design should be about problem-solving. While her classmates at the National Institute of Design at Ahmedabad in India were focusing on luxury products, she was improving the design of bedpans for the country's crowded public hospitals. After that experience, she decided to use design to transform healthcare broadly. Today she runs a company called Sohum Innovation Lab, and the first product is a device to screen babies for hearing impairment. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Kaz. Tell me how you're feeling. <laughs> Tired and excited. <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm actually feeling, um, you know, extremely proud, but also really humbled. Because the Rolex family of people are just, if you've looked at all the other previous Rolex laureates, they're such interesting people with such determination and drive. And they've gone to great lengths of success. And I'm really motivated, actually, and inspired. Tell me something about your invention. It is a hearing screening device. So we are the Soham Innovation Lab, and this is kind of the first big thing that we're working on. It screens newborns for hearing loss so that they can be given rehabilitation in time and we can prevent speech loss. Because if screening doesn't happen, it usually leads to speech loss in countries like India, where a child goes undiagnosed till the age of three or four. The parents usually think the baby's fine and they slowly start to realize she hasn't said a word yet. And by then she's already you know, four years old, it's too late. They go to the pediatrician, a lot of frustration actually. And they go to so many, they're referred to different people and by the time they reach the audiologist and actually get screened and diagnosed, it's too late usually to save speech. Can you tell me how you got involved in that? We were, you know, always we've had a big passion for doing medical devices. I started to make an ultrasonic scanner. But, you know, I quickly realized that it wasn't enough to make just the device, but there were so many 
other things in that system connected to it that we had to look at it kind of from the bigger picture, kind of zoom out and look at everything that needs to change to um, enable this uh, big change. We need to leverage technology to actually tackle a mission of this you know, magnitude. And hearing screening was a need that came out of my husband's uh, time at Biodesign, Stanford India Biodesign. So we made a company to address that need and, um, you know. You created a company? Yes. The Soham Innovation Labs company, yes. Will you be manufacturing the device yourself in India? Will it be a, a totally homegrown product? It is indigenously developed, so all of the development is happening in India. Um, of course, we have partners even abroad. I think without their support, we, it would have been very difficult to do it in India alone, and it's a collaborative um, effort. At the same time, I think manufacturing, we're still considering that a little bit. We have been in touch with a few vendors also to see if we can manufacture with them, with their support. Um, we're still looking at that. Can I ask you about collaboration? You, um, you mentioned earlier that uh, you're looking to collaborate with Arthur in Cameroon with yes. his um, cardiac tablet. Now, how is that going to shape up? How is that going to happen? The technology is completely different. Um, what he's working on and what I'm working on, that's, uh, you know, that's... So we're working on brain signals and ABR particularly, which is audiometric brainstem response. And... Um, what collaborative is very interesting because the aftercare network, the idea of, you know, doing screening or in my case and diagnosis in his case, remotely to kind of allow a larger group of experts to address the needs of several people. I think these are very similar things. So situations are very similar in that sense. And this problem of lack of a universal hearing screening program is prevalent in all developing countries. And to give you a more kind of stark number, 90% of all of the hearing impaired children in the world are actually born in developing countries. And this is where hearing screening doesn't exist. So I think having someone like Arthur to work with is going to be great. And we've often talked about testing it in international markets, but having a partner on the ground and the support to kind of you know navigate the cultural settings there, it's going to be very interesting. Without wanting to steal any of your secrets, but um, are you working on any future technology that you think will be as revolutionary as this? We hope so. And I think we are very excited because all in all, our mission kind of of the company, we're called Soham Innovation Lab. So our mission is really to be able to bring affordable and innovative healthcare to resource poor settings. And we've identified a few unmet needs and we're looking for ways to leverage technology and apply technology that exists maybe or even new completely new technology in a way that makes sense in resource poor settings. Iti, thank you very much indeed and congratulations once again. Thank you, thank you so much. Every year, some 100,000 hearing-impaired babies are born in India, and a device such as Kalis's could help reduce the burden. Meanwhile, another health condition is spreading across the developing world at an unprecedented rate. Obesity is on the increase as a result of changing diets. 
Over one-third of all adults across the world, almost one and a half billion people, are obese or overweight. And in the last two decades, the numbers of people affected in the developing world more than tripled, from 250 million to 904 million. Well, these are the findings of the Future Diets Report, published by the Overseas Development Institute, the ODI, in London this year. Well, the report, we had a very simple objective. We're tracking world food prices, and particularly cereals prices, ever since the cereals price spike of 2007-2008. And therefore, we asked ourselves the following question. By the year 2030, when we'll have 7 billion people, and the year 2050, when we'll have 9 billion people on the planet, what happens if people follow different diets in terms of the amount of food that has to be produced and therefore the price of that food. And our particular interest here was livestock products because if people move to livestock diets similar to those in Europe and North America, the amount of feed grains which are necessary and therefore the price of cereals uh, should be so much higher than if people converge on a diet more similar to that seen in, say, Japan, for example, which has a much lower per capita consumption of animal products. There is a particular driver that is moving people away from one kind of diet and towards another kind of diet. What would that driver be? Well, diets are changing in the developing world. Um, They're going through a transition from diets largely based upon staples, that's cereals, roots and tubers, towards diets that are more diverse, including a lot more animal products, some additional fruit and vegetables, uh, lots more oils and fats, uh, and quite a bit more salt and sugar in them. So they're going through those kinds of dietary transitions. Now, dietary transitions are great, but in the process, people are taking in diets which are more energy-dense. And on the other side of the equation, people's lives are becoming more sedentary, so their energy expenditure is going down at a time when the temptation is to increase the energy intake, and as a result, waistlines are expanding. Now, on a slightly more optimistic note, one sandwich a day. Even in the rich countries, the difference between what we are eating and what we're expending in energy and what is therefore year by year increasing our waistlines is actually very little indeed. It may be as little as 100 kilocalories per day. And there are US estimates that say that if we wanted to get the US population to stop increasing the proportion of overweight and obesity and to get back to the levels that we had in 1970 when we think that the American people were a great deal more healthy than they are today. What does America need to do? 200 kilocalories a day on the energy balance is the change that we need. Now, 200 kilocalories a day, there are sandwiches you can buy on the street that have more than 200 kilocalories a day in them. It's no more than about 30 minutes moderate walking And if you do more vigorous exercise, jogging for example, it's going to be less than half an hour's jogging a day. Well, that was Stephen Wiggins, an agricultural economist who works at the ODI on agricultural development, food prices and biofuels. So how else will diets change in the future and what do analysts recommend? The most important finding in our report shows that the amount of meat that people eat on average makes a big difference to the price of meat. So if we can nudge diets across the world towards 
a Japanese style diet where people are eating not much more than 40 kil kilograms of meat per person per, per year as opposed to an American style which is closer to 120 uh, kilograms per person per year. The more we can nudge people towards a low meat diet, the more affordable meat will be and the more that people on low incomes can get a decent share of the meat. So there's a, there's a meat justice issue which is coming up there where we need to have conversations globally. And within the global debate on sustainable growth, the topic of food security comes with questions over the management of natural resources. There's going to be a rebalancing of world agriculture if we get to the, uh, the goals we need to get to. Four years ago in this institute, we did a very, very small study where we looked at the case of Mozambique and we looked at the case of typical smallholder agriculture in Mozambique, which produ produces at very low levels of intensity. And we said, now, if you use a climate-smart agriculture with lots of fiderbia trees to lock in carbon into the land um, to reduce environmental losses... Uh, are we actually taking people back on their incomes and away from poverty? And on the contrary, no. You could introduce those changes and people were at such a low level of income and farming, it was possible to change the system, increase the productivity of the system, make it more environmentally sustainable and do a world of good to people's incomes and take people out of poverty. As global diets are changing, the environment will experience all sorts of different stresses, but scientists agree that a sensible plan is still possible and could help avoid environmental and economic shocks. The global economic crisis will also have an impact on global health goals. This according to Professor Sir Leszek Borisiewicz, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Cambridge and former head of UK's Medical Research Council. I sat down with Leszek to have a chat about what he thinks the role of education is in tackling these global health challenges. The availability of resources has always been a factor limiting the global response to wider health and environment issues. Why do you think the current financial climate is any different? Well, I don't think it's that different. Uh, resources in relationship to health are always going to be less than what can actually be achieved with our current knowledge of health. The problem is equity of resources. As we have the 90-10 problem that has been well promulgated by many other speakers in that we have the lowest amount of resource where there probably is the greatest need. We also have expenditures that uh, are very often, particularly in developed countries, where huge volumes of the gross domestic product are actually spent on health measures with relatively little public benefit in terms of longevity. Whereas we have countries where even a small further investment could result in major uh, benefits. So it's the act of trying to see what can be done to begin to develop greater equality of opportunity and be able to support those activities at a time of austerity. The good news is very simple, is that actually you need to do and expend relatively little to improve healthcare in about 67 to 70% of the world's countries. One of the areas that we have to often think about though is we always equate health with access to hospitals or great diagnostics or fantastic new drugs. The real benefits are often there because of investment in public health, in education, in a whole range of other disciplines, they actually can result in improvement of health. The example I would always pick because of my own interest in fields particularly of women's health is the area of the impact of secondary schooling and education of girls. 
the Millennium Development Goals that focus primarily on primary and secondary education of boys. We now know from studies that UNESCO and others have published that if we educate girls into secondary education, we produce great improvements in terms of maternal mortality, real improvements in childhood mortality, greater increase in vaccine uptake. All of that costs sense, and yet it makes a big long-term difference in the opportunities for those individuals. And it's not a health intervention, it's an education intervention. Okay, so education is one critical factor that you've raised. Given that there are limited resources and equity issues, mm -hmm. what ought to be our prioritization scheme when tackling global health issues? Oh, it has to be a focus on the public health benefits and actually being able to produce improvements in public health measures. Some of these are passive, clean water supplies, good sanitation, straightforward stuff that we take for granted. Secondly, health education, as opposed to just generic education, is important because people have got to understand how they can actually improve their, uh, their own chances of survival. So infectious diseases tend to be a target when talking about global health issues, but you've raised some other issues such as the aging population. Where do you see the balance between infectious and non-communicable diseases? Well, my specialty is infectious diseases, so I can actually speak against it. In today's numbers, if you exclude Africa, then infectious diseases are no longer the major problem of the world. Major causes of death are going to be injuries, cardiovascular disease, cancer, the very same ones we face in Western countries today are the ones that are beginning to affect countries that we would still call the developing world. Now that does not mean to say infectious diseases have gone away because you have to understand infectious diseases will never go away. The problem is pathogens can always mutate faster than we can actually develop drugs against them. Tuberculosis is a growing and big problem because of resistance. Malaria has not been eradicated. So we've got to deal with that. But unfortunately for the poorer country of the world, while they're still facing these problems, they've got the burgeoning problem in their populations of the chronic diseases already coming in. So this is a double whammy that countries face and why we actually need to be able to help them in both directions. What do you think are the goalposts for us for the next five and 50 years? I think for me, the, the big goalposts are to ensure that an appropriate fraction of GDP is actually spent in countries, the poorer countries of the world, and they need support to be able to achieve those targets. Uh, what would I like to see? Uh, I would like to see three things happen, and particularly as these get onto the SDGs that will be coming out later this year. And what are SDGs for our audience who doesn't know? Sustainable Development Goals to take over from the Millennium Development Goals. Number one, remember the Millennium Development Goal targets have not all been hit. They remain priorities and have to be hit. Secondly, the Sustainable Development Goals should see a reduction in global poverty, which is often equated with ill health. We should be aiming to eradicate the dollar-a-day poverty line. Never in the history of mankind have we achieved it. We're within touching distance of being able to achieve it. And third is that we actually promote health in countries through better institution of public health measures which are cheap and effective to be there, which actually requires countries to be well educated, to be able to take forward uh, these advances. And those three elements together can probably do more for the improvement of health in the poorest countries of the world and bring them up to standards where people can enjoy some of the levels of health 
that we all take for absolutely for granted and rightly take absolutely for granted in the United States or Western Europe or elsewhere. Well, we all agree that countries deserve the same access to quality health and education, but there's little clarity on who holds responsibility for this. Ah, that's true, John. I suppose Sir Borisevich believes that governments and international agencies really share the responsibility with leading universities and thinks that they should be using their own resources to support higher education in developing countries. Often from academic knowledge to practical solutions, it's a short step. We've been meeting up with a computer scientist turned entrepreneur who wants to help low-income groups by using open access technology. When she was little, Shiko Gitao was just a kid with a talent for maths. Looking at her today, she is one of the most influential people working in tech for development in Africa. She's a successful entrepreneur and the first African winner of the prestigious Google Anita Borg Award for Women in Tech. She told us her story and how she is hoping to make a big difference for low-income groups in Africa. I, 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 always, I always say I'm a, a self-confessed geek. I'm, my mom tells me since I was a kid I loved maths. I always did well in maths. I did poorly in languages, but I did really well in maths. So when we, when we went to university, I, I checked at the course content literally, and computer science had the most maths in them. And when I went and I, I discovered programming, I fell in love with programming. I mean, I spent nights, so many of them, coding, because it was just awesome, just being able to code, to write a few lines of code, and you can do this, you can manipulate the, the system to do stuff, to say things. I wrote programs to say my father's name, my mother's name, to, to do all sorts of stupid things. And that was fascinating. I loved it, loved it, loved it. And um, that's, that's how I got into technology, because it just, it was just, it changed everything I thought about technology. My curiosity was amped. Well, after getting into computer science, a new experience showed her what she really wanted to do with her life. And then I think when I was in third year, I got an internship uh, with um, a volunteer internship with, uh, with UNICEF. And I was sent to Mukuru Kwajenga, which is a slum in Nairobi. And I came face to face with what I think is the worst form of poverty ever. It's it's not just material poverty, it's the lo loss of hope. When you look at somebody's eyes and they're blank, they, they, they don't see past this moment you're talking to them. That is very painful. And that whole episode really changed my life. I wanted to do something important to change these kids' lives. I went there with a blank slate. I wanted to just do something. I wanted to change the world using technology. That's, that's, that's still what I want to do. I met a group of women and I was, I was just doing a study on how do people use the internet on their mobile phone, on like WAP, not high-speed high internet. It was very basic internet. And so I need to understand how are people using this? Because I was thinking if I can understand how they're using it right now, I can see what are their needs and how can I build on top of it to make their life much better. And I discovered this, this group of people who have great phones, but are not using the internet. And I, I thought to myself, hmm, interesting, why are you not using the internet? They say, oh, I have heard about the internet, the internet is for guys, or oh, the internet is not for me. 
I said, but you know you can have internet on your phone. I said, what if I taught you the internet? And that actually sparked a lot of interest. I got this group of 35 women and I trained them very basic internet, basic, really basic, 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 just, just basically how to browse, how to search, how to email. And that, I would say, is a face that literally changed my life because of human innovation. This group of women basically helped me write my proposal for my PhD. I always say that because I was trying to understand how they're using the internet to try and build on top of the internet. And they taught me that, you know what, if you give me enough information, I can actually solve my own problems. And uh, a few weeks, some, somebody discovered Facebook. This was like in 2008. And then um, the next level was, um, how do, what, what else are they doing? They started coming to me with questions. They said, oh, Shiko, by the way, I typed jobs in Cape Town. I said, you did? First of all, it takes you back, you, you did. And then you discover they actually try to solve their problem, but they don't have the means to do it. Just have to give them an extra helping hand. And the most, I always say the most painful, but the most insightful moment in my whole entire life up to now was when I sat down with this woman who typed her whole CV on her small Nokia screen. Whole CV, I kid you not. Three-page CV, typed it down on her Gmail window, on her small Nokia phone. And that is what was the basis of my PhD. That night, went home, cried, sat down on my machine, designed what became Umeli, my PhD. She founded Umeli, a platform to help local communities create their own job opportunities. Users can post or search for job offers. They can also receive professional tips and create networks. Shall we sign up, John? Definitely. So I'm taking a peek at this platform right now, and it looks a little bit like LinkedIn, but what do you suppose is new about it? Well, to start with, the site is hosted on a mobile platform. Uh, It's called Young Africa Live, and it's there to make it more accessible in countries really where mobile phones are more common than computers. Right. And it's also specifically targeted at people who have difficulties in entering the job market because they have little or no employment history. Mm. And I'm reading the Umeli page right now, and Shiko describes her vision here. I'll quote this. It's quite great. The emphasis is on a community where young Africans can support each other in the development of their careers, share ideas, act as connectors, or even just be a sounding board when things seem hopeless. Umeli disrupts the colonial-inspired individualistic job culture, which does not work for Africa. Inspiring words. Well, that's it for this month. From me, John Eskam. And from me, Chris Kreese. There's more news, analysis and multimedia on SciDev.net. Until next time, it's goodbye.